Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host, and this is episode 24, The One Who Answers the Call. What does paraclete mean? What is the Holy Spirit's mission? And what is the full definition of prophecy? Steve is teaching on the Holy Spirit in this continued study of John chapter 14. And as we do it, I was trying to figure out how to teach this to you because it is so multi-layered. 14, 15, and 16 are incredibly dense. Uh, they're, they're so rich. But when you try to take it apart to teach it, what do I do? Do I do it verse by verse? Do I do it thematically? So let me just give you four themes that are in these, whatever it is, 17 verses. Number one. The theme that keeps coming up is loving and obeying. The second one is, I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming. The third one is really interesting. And this comes out in a lot, a lot, a lot of John. Uh, This one we see in chapter 7. We see it in in 8. We see it again and again. And now I better tell you what it is we see. (laughs) Number three, the world and the realm of the spirit, or the kingdom of heaven, if you like, are completely separate. And in this passage, these verses, five times, John very deliberately uses the term the world. Okay? And then the fourth theme is the peace of Christ. So, do you want me to repeat those? We got him? What was the second one? The second one was Holy Spirit is coming. So that's just to give you a bit of a net to contain what we're going to try to cover tonight. So remember what I told you earlier, as he talks to these closest friends, he knows that he is being betrayed right while he talks, because he's already had Judas has left in chapter 13. And while he's teaching, he knows he is being betrayed by somebody he loves. Um, So what we hear in these verses is great intimacy, but also great urgency, and sometimes I think some sadness. So I'm going to, if you've got your Bibles, we'll start at uh, verses 15 to 18. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Truthfully, in my first decade uh, following the Lord, we were in a church with lovely people, but I think some of their theology wasn't good. It, it was ultimately very works-centered. And this was a verse we heard teaching on a number of times that was like this conditional thing. Um, I always felt like bait and hook. You know, if you, if you really love me, then you'll do what I say. Sometimes you would hear a frustrated parent say that to their seven-year-old, right? Um, 
But I don't see it that way. I see it as a promise more than a condition. The promise is, guess what? Love leads to obedience. If you hear it as a promise, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. In the, in the old covenant, the commandment was, thou shalt not steal. In the new covenant under grace, it's a promise. Thou shalt not steal. And uh, so I think that's a pretty good example of that. Um, it's the power of grace over law. Love me dominates this, this section. He says, love me in verse 15, 21, 23, and in 24, it's in the negative. And if you don't love me, or some don't love me. Loving Jesus comes with the promise here of what? Of his presence. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell within the disciples. It's a promise with his presence. Let's look at it again, all right? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And there's a coordinate conjunction for all of you former English students. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you. He is the Spirit of truth. Okay? Um, so the Holy Spirit will come. With This is the promise of his presence. And then he goes on to say, by the way, Holy Spirit will come and dwell within the disciples. The next section, which we'll, I'm going to jump ahead for a second, he says Jesus will come within them. So the first one, the Holy Spirit is going to come within you. The second one, Jesus is going to come within you. And he will give you another counselor. This is pretty important. We're going to, we're going to dig into this a little now and a lot at the end. The word... And some of your Bibles will say counselor, some will say comforter, some will say helper, um, is paraclete, P-A-R-A-C-L-E-T-E. John uses the word paraclete numerable times, and he is the only one who, in the Bible who ever uses paraclete to uh, describe the Holy Spirit, both in John's Gospel and in his first letter. Paraclete is a really dense, dense Greek word. And so it's translated in all kinds of different ways. Uh, teacher, helper, comforter. Um, the uh, New Revised Standard says advocate. You've probably got some of those in your Bibles right here. The Literally, paraclete means this. I think it's fascinating. The one who answers the call. Isn't that good? That's what it literally means. That the paraclete, Holy Spirit, he answers the weak and those in need and those who call out to him. Let me just throw this idea out to you. When we answer the call, when we hear someone in trouble, when there's someone in pain, and, uh, and we answer that call, we are functioning in the role of the Holy Spirit. We are functioning as paraclete. Just a thought. Um, so he answers the weak and those in need. This is the first of five paraclete passages in the farewell discourse, chapter 14, 15, and 16. 
You know, in the Old Testament, there's that great promise, and we, we sing about it, especially at Christmas, um, um, that, that great promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Remember Isaiah seven fourteen? I mean, I remember, we've got a friend, Chuck, who has a great song about that, and so forth. Well, Israel was holding on for, for the fulfillment of that Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus is telling them now, That hope is being realized in the paraclete, the Holy Spirit coming to you, and he will remain with you. I'm going to talk a lot more about the paraclete at the end, okay? But it's, it's, uh, even in the passage we're looking at tonight, that word comes up a number of times. And isn't it interesting that John is the only one who uses it in all the New Testament? And he uses it again and again. So, uh, in this passage, uh, I'm looking, I will not leave you as orphans. Huh. Maybe I missed the verse, or maybe I didn't. We'll find out. <laughs> Jesus asks the Father, oh, that's it. There's something Trinitarian here. You guys all understand, the doctrine of the Trinity was an evolving doctrine. I'm reading a lot now of uh, second century church fathers, and it's evolving, it's evolving, it's evolving. But it's not that that, that the Trinity is evolving, getting the language for the reality of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everybody with me? God never changes, but our revelation is going through an evolution. And John is, after all, I told you up to 40 years after Mark, He's moving it a long way forward, the whole Trinitarian understanding. So what do we have here? He says, Jesus is going to ask the Father, and who sends the Holy Spirit? The Father sends the Holy Spirit. And when I read that, I thought of one phrase in the Nicene Creed, so I wrote it down. Uh, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. Okay? So, verse 17, he says, The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Again, here's that other theme, the separation of the world and those who are in Christ. Now, what else we see here? He remains with you. Do you see that? Some of your Bibles, do they say he abides with you? It's the same word we've talked about from the beginning of this study, meno, M-E-N-O. 63 times John uses the word meno. It's central to this gospel. It's all about abiding, remaining, dwelling, right? Staying. All the way back in chapter 1, the first disciples are following Jesus. They're not even disciples yet. They say, hey, where are you staying? He says, come and see. Where are you, Menno? John is deliberate 63 times through here. So for John, the central factor to know or not know, because he's saying the world doesn't know him, they can't know him. The great dividing line between knowing him and not knowing him is not doctrine. It is not really knowing the scripture. It is abiding. That is the door on which everything, the hinge on which the door turns. Okay? Abiding in Him. 
And then verse 18, yeah, I like the New Living Translation. He says, and I will not abandon you. I promise you John was using some irony here. Why is this ironic? Because in just a few hours, what are they going to do? They're going to abandon him, every one of them. And he says, I won't abandon you. Let's go down to verse 19. In a little while, the world will see me no longer. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. Before I go any further, can you, can you see again a reflection of the mysticism, the multi-layered, the reality that is not time and space bound, that is in John's Gospel? In a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Isn't that interesting? Because I live, you will live too. Then we come to my beloved verse 20, and that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. That verse affects the way I lead worship. It affects my morning's times. It affects when I'm driving in the car. That verse has just got deep into my soul. In fact, i got to say it again. <laughs> I'm in the Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. Verse 21, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. You see that again from where we started in verse 15? And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. There's several points here. The theme of the world's separateness uh, from perceiving the realm of the Spirit. We see it again. Verse 19, Because I live, you will live too. The resurrected Christ. Alan and I were talking about this today on, on the Facebook Live podcast that we were doing. The resurrected Christ is the first fruits of eternal life. Paul talks about that again and again and again. A classic uh, is uh, 1 Corinthians 15. This resurrected life, he talks about it in Colossians, he talks about it in Romans. This resurrected life, the resurrected Christ, which is going to happen three days from then, is the first fruits of eternal life. And there's two levels of meaning. He says, I'm going to come out, you're going to see me, right? Let's, let's just make sure I'm accurate. In a little while you will see me no longer, or the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. At one level, he's talking about his immediately post-resurrection appearances. And by the way, of all of them, John is the most deliberate that these are physical because he's fighting Gnosticism, which, which we can talk about later. But anyway, he's fighting an idea that he was really spirit and not material. So he's eating fish. He's, he is absolutely materially there, okay? So at one level, the world's not going to see me, you're going to see me, post-resurrection. But secondly, these appearances will begin something that is a deeper, permanent, both imminent and transcendent presence. Imminent meaning it's right there, transcendent, it's all around us. Verse 20, I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you. Let me just say that I think this takes us back to a word that I've taught you over the last 
month is perichoresis. And perichoresis is the movement of God within the Trinity. It's been known, the church fathers call it the divine dance. And it's all about that movement. And it's about the inseparable and interconnected relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's absolutely dynamic, changing, moving all the time. And so I believe when he says, I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you, it's this invitation into the eternal triune activity of God. Some of you folks that are newer here, you don't know, but I said that this is this revelation of the Trinity is probably the, the, the most impactful revelation and studying that I've done in years. And uh, the, the, the incarnation takes me to the cross, which takes me to the resurrection, which takes me into the triune God, the perichoresis, the, the divine dance of the Trinity. So, verse 21, again, Jesus connects love with obedience. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. So again, Jesus is connecting love with obedience. This intimate fellowship with him is marked by obedience. And yet it's an obedience that does not come out of effort, or I should. It is the fruit of a heart that's in love. You know, there's something about deference in obedience. I was thinking about in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, he goes through all, he's so honest with the Father of all of what he's processing and working through. And he says, but not my will, but your will be done. There's a deference, which takes us back, I realized, to Philippians 2, 6 to 11, what I've talked about, the kenosis, the emptying. The emptying of himself has to do with deference. It has to do with preferring him. And it's done out of love, and that's where the life of this thing is. Otherwise, it leads us right back into legalism. You better do what you're supposed to do. You better be obedient so that you get the benefits. That's the law. What Christ is talking about with his beloved friends is that the fruit of abiding, the fruit of being in love with him, is that you just obey and you're not even trying to obey. Does that make sense to everybody? This is a gospel of great grace. Great grace. Okay, let's look at verses 22 to 24. The other Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? They're, they're trying to keep, keep up. They don't quite, ah, you lost us in that last bend. And Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There we are again. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Notice the plural. First person plural there. We and our. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear isn't even mine. 
It's from the Father who sent me. So, several points here. Number one, love is what connects us with Jesus. Folks, I've been pastoring a long time now, since 1981. And I know that doctrine will not keep us. It won't. You can take all the doctrine classes you want. And I love doctrine. But it's got nothing to do with maturity. In fact, I would say, according to Luke 6, maturity is measured by compassion, not by doctrine or knowledge of the Bible. Be ye compassionate, just as your Father in Heaven is compassionate. So, love is what connects us with Jesus. And sadly, the church all over the world, I walked right into this again when I was in Europe two, three months ago, replaces intimacy and abiding with head knowledge. We're going to do more classes. We're going to do more new believers classes. We're going to do more going deeper. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to. And that's not it. It's abiding. It's abiding. That connects us with Jesus. I think if we spent time learning to abide, we learned how to be still and commune our heart with His. That's what connects us. That's what moves us forward. And as we connect with Jesus, we come into the revelation of who He is. My wife's had to listen to me now for several years. It's all about who He is. It's all about who He is. And when I go, whether I'm leading journeys or whether I'm doing pastor's conferences like we were doing last week, no matter where I go, it's all about who Jesus is. It really, really is. Experientially, who Jesus is. Not doctrinally. So last week, I mentioned our clean water efforts, and now I'd like to get a little more specific. I'm not sure if you've heard, but there's a cholera epidemic in Zimbabwe right now, and we're going to do something about it. Cholera is a waterborne bacterial disease that absolutely leads to death. Impact Nations is working with partners from South Africa to bring water filters to the cholera outbreak in Zimbabwe. These filters will save lives. The filters are already on their way to Africa, but we need your help with the additional costs of distribution, including fuel and lodging for our distributors. Will you help us? Please give to our iThirst Clean Water program at impactnations.com slash cleanwater. Thanks for your partnership. And now, back to the podcast. At one level, we are never separated from God. Uh, Psalm 139 is the classic. Again, Alan and I were talking about this today. You know, Even if I go into Sheol, Sheol or Hades or however your Bible defines it, even there, your spirit is there. Right? At one level, we can never be separated from God. Yet at another level, our love for him draws him to us. He's a lover. And our love for him draws him to us. Um, And when he's drawn to us, guess what he does? John tells us again and again. He makes his dwelling place in us. 
for his abode in us. Isn't it wonderful? The second time in this chapter that Jesus speaks of a home or abode. Remember uh, in uh, verse 2, he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. A room, a mansion, a house, an abode, depending on your translation. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And here it's used for the indwelling of the Father and the Son. Here he's talking all about them coming and, and making a place in us. And really, we make a place for him. Israel expected God's dwelling to be established in the temple. We talked a lot about that a few months ago. But John is declaring a new reality where worship is in the Holy Spirit. The believer is his dwelling place. You might want to write down 1 Corinthians 6.19. Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And he's not talking about so you shouldn't smoke or whatever. Because <laughs> that's how we used to get that verse. He said, you know, it's, you're his dwelling place. It's incredible. No wonder he says, I'm in you and you're in me. I'm my beloved's and he is mine. So I'm a song. Everybody tracking with me tonight? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. <sighs> Our worship is not in the temple. He's going out of his way to say it's a whole new deal. It's in the reality of the Holy Spirit. Remember when he's with the woman at the well in John 4. He says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, where the Samaritans believe that's where you worship, or in Jerusalem, for a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Hmm. And look at this other thing I want you to see, which, I, which I, I asked you to look at a minute ago, which is first person plural. We will come. We will come make our abode with you. John is pointing again to the inseparability of the Father and the Son. And this whole passage is so much about the Holy Spirit that it really foreshadows the Trinity. You'll see verse after verse where you'll see, if you look just a little, you'll see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Triune God. Verse 25 and 26. I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, anybody got a different word than counselor there? Advocate. Um, is that a new revised standard or an NASB? NIV. NIV, okay. Advocate. Uh, some will say the comforter. But the counselor, the, which is the paraclete, remember? The Holy Spirit. The Father will send him in my name and teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've told you. So this is the second paraclete passage. It presents the paraclete as the teacher. He's going to teach you all my stuff. (laughs) And he's going to remind you of what I already told you. So he, the paraclete is both the spokesman and the witness. Everybody with me on that? All right. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit's mission, is the completion of Jesus' mission. That's an important point. You see, this is part of this parachorosis. It is this mutual honoring 
of the other. Honoring. Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus says, you are the father. I love you. Holy Spirit. Uh, he speaks of the things that Jesus says. Jesus says, you can say whatever you want about me, but don't say anything bad about the Holy Spirit. There's this, this deference and this mutual love that we see. Okay? Perichoresis. The entwined activity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, in my name. The Father's going to do this in my name. I did a teaching last week on the name of Jesus, and, and it was hard to stop after I don't know how long I talked. Because it's so powerful. That's why Paul says, Colossians 3.17, do everything in the name. So, this intertwined activity, this perfect unity within the Trinity. We're on the home stretch of this part. Verse 27, uh, 27 28, I think. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. My heart must be troubled. Uh, your heart must not be troubled or fearful. I don't know if any of you remember, but us old charismatics from the 70s, we sang this on the Sunday night services all right along with bind us together, Lord. We, we sang, yeah, that was the other one. And the, and the number two on a hit parade was peace give I to you with a nice little round going. Does anybody remember that? Okay. You had to be old and you had to be charismatic, I guess. Um, <laughs> the paraclete is the comforter and the helper. So when he comes to us, he brings comfort and help. He brings peace. But I want to give you a thought. There's some pretty good biblical evidence that Jesus is not really talking about a new era coming right now. Like when he's telling them it's coming right now where there's going to be no more uh, warfare. He's not saying there's going to be an end to, to tension and difficulties. Number 1633, in this life you will have many troubles. The peace that he's giving is the gift of our salvation. That's the gift. It, it, it goes deeper than how we're feeling. It's not just this lack of anxiety and a good feeling. Although certainly when, they, when the presence of God comes around, that happens. But that I don't think that's what he means by these words. Paul says to the Romans in 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace. There's that same word again. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Also through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When Jesus gives peace... He gives eternal life. I think that's what he means. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, another Christmas verse, right? That the coming Messiah be known as the Prince of Peace. So John uses, in this passage, he uses the word eternal life, the phrase eternal life, 17 times. Isn't that interesting? That's a lot of times. And it is virtually synonymous with what the Synoptic Gospels call the Kingdom of God or the Kingdom of Heaven. And when he talks about peace, it's not what we used to hold hands and rock back and forth on Sunday night. Peace give I to you. 
though peace is wonderful, but the Prince of Peace is not a nice feeling. It is the reconciliation of all of the cosmos. Peace is about my salvation. Okay? So, we come to the last few verses, verse 28 and 29, the departure. He says, you've heard me tell you I'm going away, and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. Let me unpackage that. First of all, these are challenging words. They are beyond, uh, they're beyond just kind of an accepting. They're about a joyful identification and an embracing of the Father's will. Because look at that. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. It's an embracing of the Father's will. Jesus' whole life was an embracing of the Father's will. And Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. He is prophesying, isn't he? Clearly, this is prophecy. And why is he doing it? To encourage and strengthen them. I think it's too limited. I got into a, an email discussion that I'm only halfway through with a, with a, a new and Old Testament scholar, great friend of mine, about prophecy. And he said that we too easily, I'm putting my nuance on his words, we too easily default to 1 Corinthians 14.3. Prophecy is for edification, encouragement, and comfort. As if that is the full definition of prophecy. And it isn't. Those are, those are what it, it's for, but that's not all that it's for. That's why we do see some predictive prophecy. Remember Agabus? So forth. So, I, I think that prophecy does bring encouragement and it brings strength, but some of the encouragement it brings is so that as we walk through that thing, we go, oh, I had that word about that. How many here have had that experience, even in the last few months, that you had a, a word, somebody brought you a word and you recognize, oh, that's what that is, right? A few hands going up here. So, um, I'm going to go back. You've heard me say I'm going away, I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Then he says, because the Father is greater than I. Jesus represents and points to the Father. Therefore, by going to the Father, Jesus is completing his life purpose. That's why he says it is finished in John's gospel. It is finished because he's completed his life's purpose. John is saying in a time when people were wondering when Jesus was ever going to come back again, when some had doubts, he was saying that true love for Jesus recognizes his purpose and his promise to never leave or abandon all who believe in him. And then we get to a really interesting little point. He says, and the Father is greater than I. What does this mean? I told you before that, uh, repeatedly I've told you that the that, that Trinity is not a pantheon, you know, with Zeus is here and then Apollo's here and, you know, I don't remember my Greek mythology. 
And we often present the Trinity that way. There's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. No. Back to Parachorosis, right? So if they are co-equal, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If he is fully God, fully man, hypostasis, then what is going on? Why does he say the Father is greater than I? Well, I think, I surmise that while he was on earth, Jesus is living as less than the one who sent him. This is kenosis, the emptying. This is what it means to empty himself. His work is now about to be completed. So now he'll be, he will be glorified with the Father, with the glory that he had before. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? But here's where I think it gets quite interesting. This is why he's telling the disciples. Because... He says, and you, the disciples, will share in my glory because you share in my eternal life. Where do I get that from? Well, all kinds of places, but I'll give you one. John 17, 22 and 23, just three chapters on. He's praying to the Father and he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. There it is again. Don't be afraid of that which is mystical. Really, mysticism simply means uh, the experiential knowledge of God. And these are deep mysteries. I think they're very deep mysteries. Last couple of verses. Verse 30 and 31, he says, I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming and he has no power over me. On the contrary, I am going away so that the world may know that I love the Father just as the Father commanded me, so I do. And then he says, now let's get up to leave. The ruler of this world, I think has got two meanings. He's telling them prophetically. Who was the ruler of the known world at that time? Caesar. Caesar. Caesar's power is going to come against them, both in the first years of the early church, but then again, in, in stronger, by the way, by the end of the first century, when John is writing. There is great persecution. So at one level, Jesus is saying the ruler of this world is going to come against you. But at another, he's talking about spiritual forces, the powers that be. And he's saying to them, the life that you're going to live now on mission, because remember, Jesus' mission was to do the will of the Father. Their mission is to do the will of the Son. Everybody tracking? While they're on Mission, it will be in the context of spiritual warfare. That's what you're going to live in. You're going to witness it. You're going to experience it. Don't be surprised by it. You're not going to get away from it. It is the reality. One of the reasons why we learned the hard way, didn't we, dear, over the last 30 years, intercession is so valuable. It is not a nice Christian religious activity, I assure you. 
And we have, I think, I don't know what we got, 150, close to 200 intercessors now around the world. Unless I phone Randeep to say, I need you to really turn on the gusto, and the next thing I know, there's a half a million intercessors, uh, <laughs> truthfully. But um, intercession is because we follow him in the context of spiritual warfare, whether you like it or not. Okay? Um, <coughs> And Jesus is warning them, these, these guys in the room, you're about to enter into an impending struggle, here it is again, with the world. Because the world and the spiritual realm cannot coexist. Oil and water. John sees the gospel advancing in the context of spiritual warfare. He sees beyond natural events to the powers behind those events. And this is something that I so much would love to see the 21st century church understand. The powers that be that are behind the events. That whether we're talking about politics or we're talking about crime or we're talking about violence or we're talking about revolts and insurrection, whatever it is, we have got, I think, to be effective, we've got to understand the context of spiritual warfare. It is the powers at work behind those events, not the events. They're just the, the heads of the dandelions. You cut those off, you're just going to get more dandelions. Okay? Alright. And love consists in and is demonstrated by doing the Father's will. It finishes like it started. Got a couple more minutes of attention? I want to just look a little bit deeper. Kind of as a coda. Uh of this whole use of uh, paraclete and Holy Spirit. Okay? Paraclete, as I told you, is only found in John's Gospel and 1 John. He's the only one who uses that term. And John tells us a lot of things about the paraclete in this farewell discourse. Let me just give you a few. It is just a few. In 14 to 16, he says, The paraclete will come, but only if Jesus departs. He says, the paraclete comes forth from the Father. But he says, the Father will send the paraclete in Jesus' name. There again, Trinitarianism, right? John says, the paraclete is the spirit of truth. John 14.26, lest we get confused, tells us the paraclete is the Holy Spirit. Spiritus, okay? And uh, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. The Paraclete will teach and remind us. The world cannot accept, see, or recognize the Paraclete. You ever notice you're with some, some friends and they're not saved? Sometimes they pick it up, but lots of times you're aware of the presence of God. You know, place in a situation and they're oblivious the world can't perceive the paraclete by and large certainly we all know times where an unsafe person goes whoa what is that okay the paraclete will be indispensable to the disciples because because the paraclete will console will teach will guide, will help. 
John more clearly defines the role of the Holy Spirit as the paraclete than anywhere else in the Gospels. Throughout the passage we've studied, John uses both paraclete and spirit. And I've told you some words to help define the paraclete. But the word spiritus literally means breath. And it reflects movement and means, are you ready for this? Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is simply full of God. That's what enthusiasm means. So if somebody says, boy, you got a lot of enthusiasm, you say, thank you. It means full of God. The spirit and the paraclete are two aspects of who the third person is who lives and acts in us. The spirit inspires and urges us forward. Also, the paraclete holds and carries and loves and comforts us. Remember, it's all the Holy Spirit, but it's, it's like a diamond and we're turning it a little bit. All this is summed up in that wonderful word, meno, M-E-N-O, because the Holy Spirit abides in us. Abides in us. He gives us strength and love to do the works of God. It is Him in us that enables us to forgive our enemies. It is Him in us that allows us to understand the difficult ones. It's Him in us who makes us open to people with very different views. I'll give you a practical. I can get into I can get into some discussions. Sometimes they're political, often they're social. And when I feel myself starting to get angry or upset, I have to step back. I mean, I mean not literally step back. Maybe I'm sitting in the car or something, but I go, oh, that is not you, Holy Spirit. Those feelings are not you. So I need right now to draw from you. I'm slowly, slowly, slowly learning to abide in him in the midst of my life. Because I can get really bugged. <laughs> but I know that's never, never the Spirit. Okay? So for me, that's just a little practical thing that just occurred to me now. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.11. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. Very interesting. Paul calls him that in 2 Corinthians 2. Uh, pardon me, 2 Corinthians 3.13 and Galatians 4.6 and somewhere in Philippians, but I didn't write it down. God is spirit. We know that from the Samaritan in John 4.24. It means that God reveals himself to us. How? Through the Holy Spirit. I'm in my morning reading right now. I'm reading a, just an incredibly rich book on the Holy Spirit and it's so much deeper than anything I've read on on the experiential, the abiding in the Holy Spirit. It's it's I can only read a few pages at a time. It's it's tough going, but oh it's rich. So we've covered quite a bit tonight. We did manage to do it in just under an hour. Um would you guys agree that 
the farewell discourse, chapter at least chapter fourteen, is a pretty rich fair. There's a lot to it, isn't there? There's a lot to it. So next week we're going to do fifteen in a week, and then we're going to do sixteen in a week because I got a plan because I want to be finished by the time I get on that plane and fly to Bulgaria. <laughs> so I don't know if any questions came in. No, but I was going to tell you um, in the Passion Translation, verse 15 is interesting to me. It says, loving me empowers you to obey my commands. There you go. And isn't that what we've been saying tonight? Very good. Thank you, Mr. Simmons. Any questions or comments before we tune out? I see that hand. Yes, Jerry. Yes. That's how so. But then understanding that God's love is not conditional. Yeah. It's very confusing when you grew up in a home where. I understand. Right? Yeah. So this was very difficult for me to accept because I thought. Tonight? No, different. No, not. No, no, but prior. And you know, God is no different than people. Yeah, but He he is. And what does 1 John tell us? God is. Conditional love? God is love, right? He's an entirely different essence. Um, uh, The church fathers talk a lot lot about essence and experience. So, to just review what you said, because of of perhaps your conservative evangelical background, um, where the gospel is conditional good news rather than good news, if you do this, then God will come through here. But I, I absolutely hold to this have for a lot of years that this is a promise. That, that as Christina, read that again in, in Simmons' translation, verse 15. Loving me empowers you to obey my commands. Amen. That's absolutely the truth. It's absolutely true. So it's a great promise. Well, that's it for episode 24. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com and please consider helping us in our fight against that cholera outbreak in Zimbabwe. You can make your contributions at impactnations.com slash cleanwater. Thanks and have a great week.